Welcome to the Indianola First Growth Group Podcast. This original content from our growth group classes is designed to take you further in your discipleship journey. Our desire is to see you grow to a whole new level. We are going to talk about two things tonight. We're going to talk about number one, we're going to talk about knowing God. And then the second thing we're going to talk about is God knowing us. So um, I want you to, if you brought your Bible, to turn in your Bible to the book of Matthew, chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 1 through 13. It says, At that particular time, Jesus went through the fields of standing grain on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pick off the spikes of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, See there? Your disciples are doing what is unlawful and not permitted on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry and those who accompanied him? How he went into the house of God and ate the loaves of the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for the men who accompanied him, but for the priests only? Or have you never read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple violate the sanctity of the Sabbath, breaking it, and yet they are guiltless. But I tell you, something greater and more exalted and more majestic than the temple is here. And if you had only known what this saying means, I desire mercy, readiness to help, to spare, to forgive, rather than sacrifice and sacrificial victims, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And going on from there, he went into their synagogue. And behold, a man was there with one withered hand, and they said to him, Is it lawful or allowable to cure people on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him? But he said to them, What man is there among you if he has only one sheep and it falls into a pit or ditch on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much better and of more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful and allowable to do good on the Sabbath days. Then he said to the man, reach out your hand. And the man reached it out and it was restored as sound as the other one. But the Pharisees went out and held the consultation against him how they might do away with him. So I wanted to read this story in the Bible, and there's actually another story very similar to it that Pastor talked about on Sunday when he talked about um, how Jesus went in and ate with the tax collectors and the sinners, and the Pharisees got mad. It's like, why are you eating with these preeminent sinners? And he said, it's the sick who need a physician, not the well. And so what you see in both of those stories is there's need present. The disciples were hungry, Jesus was hungry, so they went ahead and did something that was not lawful to do. And on the other, it was not lawful to to do work on the Sabbath, but there's need present, and that supersedes these rules and regulations. So my question when I read that story, it's kind of a typical story about the Pharisees, you know, how they act, um, spying on Jesus all the time. And every time I, when I read that story and I picture Jesus and his disciples walking through these tall fields of grain and they're just picking the heads off and eating them and then the disciples are like, see there? And it's like, I picture it like a cartoon in my head where the disciples are hiding down in the grain and as soon as they see something they can accuse them for, they pop up and they're like, see, you guys are doing what's not lawful. And he tells them, 
don't you, did you not ever read about David when they were hungry and they did what was, and he said it, he said, it was not lawful for him to eat. So my question is, how did David know that he could do that? Because in the Old Testament, when we read in the Old Testament and they had things that you could do and they had things that you couldn't do. And you had to be very careful. And, and my mind goes to that account of um, the man who, when they were moving the cart, the Ark of the Covenant, and they were doing it in a wrong way, and it started to tip, and he held out his hand, and he died. So, I mean, you had to be really careful in the Old Testament to follow the law exactly, because there could be some really serious ramifications. So how did David know that he could go in and they could eat the showbread that was not lawful for them to eat? What made him think that that would be okay with God? Jesus said right here, it was not lawful for them to do that. So I'm wondering, when I read a story like that, I think, how did David know that it would be okay? And then my next question is, would I have known that it was okay? Because I'm a rule follower. You know, if somebody says, this is the rule, A, B, C, D, I'm going to follow those rules as long as I know what they are. But yet, God, in this passage, he says, um, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And so his answer here, when he says that in verse 7, if you had only known what this saying means, I desire mercy, readiness to help, to spare and to forgive rather than sacrifice and sacrificial victims, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. So I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, and I, to be honest with you, there was a point in my life for sure where I wouldn't have known. I would have been like, well, we can't eat that bread. And I wouldn't have, I wouldn't care if you were hungry or not. I was going to follow the rules. And I think what Jesus is inviting us into here is I want you not just to know what the rules are, but to know my heart and why it would have been okay to do that. Because if we know the character of God, we know that he cares more about people than about rules and regulations. Um, but what caused David to feel like he could even ask about that is what I'm trying to get us to see is that, that sometimes we can have such a religious and legalistic approach to God where we're going to, you know, okay, just tell me what the rule is and I'll follow that rule instead of wanting to know his heart. Because what's the thing that, that the scriptures always, one of the main things that the, the scriptures tell us about David? David was a man after God's own heart. He knew the heart of God. And he knew that his God was a merciful God and that he cared about the needs of people. And so in that case, it was more important to feed his hungry man. And he, and that, yes, he did. You're right, he did in that. If you go back and read that account, he asked the priest for it. And the priest, and he said, he said what, what Dennis just said, if, if the men haven't been with women recently, I guess, and if you keep it separate from anything else. So, so they were able to do that. But the, the bottom line is David knew the heart of God because, um, um, so I want to go to this verse that Jesus quoted to him where he said that, and even, even in the, the account that pastor brought up on Sunday about the um, Pharisees being upset that he ate with the tax collectors, 
he quoted the same scripture to him. It's in Hosea um, chapter 6, verse 6. So Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. It says, For I desire and delight in dutiful, steadfast love and goodness, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of and acquaintance with God more than burnt offerings. So in this verse, when you look it up, he says a little, this says a little bit more than what Jesus actually quoted to him. But the second part of it is, he desire God, this is God speaking, I desire and delight in love and goodness, not rules and regulations, basically, not sacrifice and sacrificial victims, and the knowledge of an acquaintance with God more than burnt offerings. God wants us to know him. Um, Tony, he, Tony's got a living Bible here. Read that nice and loud in the living Bible, just verse 6. Right, so he's saying, just right out there, I'm not after your sacrifices. I want your love. His heart. He's saying, this is what I want. That's, he's revealing his heart to us. And it's like, I don't want your offerings. I want you to know me. So I want you guys to stop and just let that sink in for a minute. That God, God wants us to know him. He invites us to know him. And he says over and over again, it's not about you following the rules. It, you know, honestly, it's not about us being churchgoers or even reading our Bible or a lot of the things that we do. It's not about that. It's about do we know him? Have we, have we been one that has pressed in to know him? to love him and to know him and not just settled for a religion or a religious experience or just doing the Christian thing so that we can say, you know, yeah, I'm a Christian. But do you know God? If you're a Christian, God is saying, this is what I want from you. Remember I said at the very beginning of these lessons, I said part of what really got me studying about what it means to be the image of God is that because of the age I'm at, I'm sure has a lot to do with it. Most of my life is behind me than what is ahead of me. That you start to think about and really look at, you know, when I pass on, what is God going to say about my life? Because I know, I know that I know that I know that I know that I am truly born again and that I belong to God. I am his daughter. He is my God, and he has declared that I am righteous by virtue of the blood of Jesus, and he has opened up the way for me to come into his presence. But have I? When I go on to be with the Lord, is he going to say, you know, you did a lot of stuff, a lot of religious activity, but Leslie, you didn't know me. Would he say, you know, and, and the question, I don't think he would say that to me because I know him. And we do have that relationship going. But what I was, what was very prominent in my mind and really was, was really prominent. I, I mean, it was something that I was really thinking about. It wasn't just, eh, you know, whatever. Was, am I going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Well, for me to hear that, for him to say to me, well done, I better know what he wants from me. I better know what it is. What does it mean? to be his child, to be his daughter. And what I'm reading right here that we just read is what he wants is not a bunch of religious activity, but he wants my heart. His 
heart is he wants my heart. And he wants me to love him and he wants me to know him. And whenever you read the word know in the Bible, it's not talking about it just, you know, I know so-and-so. You know, I could say, I know Joyce Meyer. I, do you guys all know who Joyce Meyer is, most of you? A, a, a well-known Bible teacher. I used to listen to her hours every day. Um, I would get up in the morning, I'd, and I'd tune, when I first became aware of her, I would tune her into my radio, and I'd get out, I would get out a piece of paper. I wasn't working. Um, I had little kids. I was a stay-at-home mom. I'd get out a piece of paper and a pencil, and I'd be ready, and I'm going to hear what she's saying, and I'm going to write it down, and I'm going to think about it. And then I became a partner, and I started getting all of her material. Then I started going to her, her seminars, and so I, I've read her books. I've listened to her tapes way back. I've listened to her CDs. So I feel like I've heard all of her stories. She tells a lot of funny stories. I've heard them all. I could tell her stories probably as well as she could tell her stories. I know Joyce Meyer. I know some of the crazy, silly things she has done. But you know what? She doesn't know me. If you said to her something about Leslie Scavo, she'd say, I don't know her. It's not about just knowing things about someone. It's about having that intimate two-way relationship. And that's what God is wanting from us. And for me to think that he's actually inviting us in, that that's what his settled desire is, is to really have us know him, that he is willing to reveal himself to us on an intimate level. So what I started to say was when the Bible talks about knowing God, the word knowing somebody, it's always talking about, well, I can't say always, but, but when it's talking about our relationship with God, it's talking about intimacy. It's not talking about me knowing a whole bunch of facts and Bible stories and really interesting things and being a real um, knowledgeable person on the word. That's good. Study is good. I absolutely, for sure, 100% want to study my Bible and to know um, the accounts in here because it's revealing God to me. But what I could know, I could quote every Bible verse in the whole Bible to you and not have an intimate relationship with God, right? It's about being in his presence. It's about pressing in to the Holy of Holies because the, the way has been made open for us to do that. And we have a God who is inviting us in, who in fact is telling us that that's exactly what he wants from us, is to know him and to be intimate with him, to where we know him intimately, but he also knows us intimately. And that's the second point that I'm going to be making, but we're not done with the first point yet. Um, so David was a man after God's own heart. So Turn to, if you have your Bible, to Jeremiah chapter 9. I'm just going to, we're just going to quickly um, read a, a couple verses that are going to say the same thing. Tell us again. That's how important it is to God. He didn't just say it once. Remember on our first lesson, I, I talked about learning the Bible and really taking seriously the context of a, any verse that you're reading in the Bible. Um, we talked about how Jesus, when he was tempted by the devil, and he said, it is written, it is written, 
it is written three times. At one of those times, he said, because the devil quoted the word to him. And on one of those times, he said, well, it is written again. And he brought in another scripture verse to balance out because you can't take just one verse and say, this is what the Bible says, and I'm going to make a big doctrine out of it. You have to take the Bible, the whole Bible, this whole thing, in order to really um, have a, a good balanced understanding of God. So um, in Jeremiah 9, 23, it says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise person glory and boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty and powerful person glory and boast in their strength and power. Let not the person who is rich in earthly wealth glory and boast in their temporal satisfactions and earthly riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me personally, practically, directly discerning and recognizing my character, that I am the Lord who practices loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight. So he's saying that, you know, don't brag about anything except that you know me, and not just that you know about me, but that you know my character and what I delight in, that I delight in showing mercy and loving kindness and righteousness and justice. So he's inviting us in to know him by virtue of his character and who he is, his heart, not just his actions. Um, Jeremiah 31, 31, we're not going to turn there. Um, but in that, um, in that verse, God is saying to, about talking about the new covenant. And he's saying, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring a new covenant. I'm going to give people a new heart and a new spirit. And they will all know me from the least to the greatest. You won't have to teach every man his neighbor, say, know the Lord, because everybody's going to know me. Everybody has the opportunity to know God now. He is inviting all of us into relationship with him, intimate relationship, and he wants us to know him, but not just about him. He wants us to know who he is and his character. When we're, when we're doing worship songs at church or praise songs, my absolute favorite songs are the songs that talk about his character, you know, who he is, that he's wonderful, you know, that he's mighty. You know, all of the ones that extol the character of God, man, those will just take you right into the presence of God because your eyes are on him. Your eyes aren't on, you know, this is what God does for me and singing about what God does for me. That's awesome. That's praise. But to worship God, you go from, this is what God has done for me and I'm a child, you know, all that. You go from that to focusing not on me, not even on what he's done for me, but I'm focusing on who he is in his heart, in his, in the, in his character. So we have a couple, um, so far I've, we've read three Old Testament scriptures that talk about how much God wants us to know him. Um, in the New Testament, we're just going to read a couple. I'm going to quote to you John 17, 3, where Jesus said, and this is eternal life. What is eternal life according to John 17, 3? Does anybody remember that verse? That you know God. This is what Jesus defines eternal life as, as knowing God. So we like to say, yeah, I'm saved. I've got eternal life. Well, that means knowing God in relationship, but knowing him intimately and knowing him like what these verses we just read about in the Old Testament say, where we actually 
understand his character, that he delights in loving kindness and tender mercies, that he looks and he longs to pour out his grace upon us. All of those things that show his heart for mankind. Um, we're going to read John 14. It says, the person who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who really loves me. And whoever really loves me will be loved by my father. And I too will love him and will show, reveal, manifest myself to him. I will let myself be clearly seen by him and make myself real to him. That's an amazing promise that we have. And you know, it, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And it's not like, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's not like that. It's a, if you love me, Tony, if you love me, God speaking to him, you will keep my commandments. So what do we do? We need to just fall in love with him. And that'll automatically produce that fruit in us because it will transform us to where we are walking in the light, even as he is in the light, and we're keeping his commandments. Not because, oh, I've got rule number one, rule number two, rule number three. I'm just bearing fruit because of who I've been with, because I know him and I love him. And now all of a sudden, I'll keep his commandments because it's him working in me and through me. It's him doing it. It's his fruit. So there's a New Testament one. There's, there's more, but just for the sake of time, we're not going to read them. Um, another Old Testament saint who knew God, Moses. Okay, I want you guys to see this in um, Psalm 103, verse 7. Okay, it says, He made known his ways of righteousness and justice, to Moses, his acts to the children of Israel. So right there we see a difference. We see Moses, he knew more of God than the whole nation, the rest of the nation of Israel. Moses knew his ways, his character. It's like he's saying, Moses knew my ways because he knew what was behind those ways. He knew my character and why I acted the way I acted. Moses understood that. But the children of Israel, they never did press in to know God like Moses did. And they didn't know his ways, but they knew his acts because they could see his, his acts and observe how he moved and what he did with the nation of Israel. They could see what he was doing, but they didn't know why. <clears throat> they didn't know his character and what caused God to do the things that he did. And so we see that difference between them. So then the next verse is, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy and loving kindness. And that's a direct, that's a partial quote of when God revealed himself to Moses on the mountain. So I want to, I want to read that whole account because um, it's in Exodus 33. We're talking about knowing God. So I want you to follow me. You guys with me? Are you following my train of thought here? Or are you like, where are we in this? I'm not sure where you're going. We are talking about knowing God and not just knowing about him, but knowing him on an intimate level. So Exodus 33, um, we see in verse 8, it says, um, When Moses went out to the tent of meeting, and all the people rose and stood, every man at his tent door, and looked after Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud, the presence of God, 
the pillar of cloud, would descend and stand at the door of the tent, and the Lord would talk with Moses. And all the people saw the pillar of cloud stand at the tent door, and all the people rose up and worshiped every man at his tent door. And the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Moses returned to the camp, but his minister Joshua, son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. So God is saying to Moses, Moses, I know you by name. And Moses, you have found favor in my sight. So now Moses is saying, well, so therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, show me now your way. Right here, back in Exodus 33, we find out why it says in Psalm 103, verse 7, that Moses knew his ways. Because Moses asked him. Moses went to God into the tent of meeting and the pillar would come down and he would be there with God. He was pressing in to know God intimately and all of the nation of Israel, they stood back at their own tent door and they watched. How many times do we read that the people of Israel said, Moses, you go talk to God for us. Moses, you go. We can't go. We're scared. You know, they were so afraid of God and they were scared and they wouldn't go. But Moses went. Moses pressed in to know God, and it says right here, he says, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you progressively, become deeply and intimately acquainted with you, perceiving and recognizing and understanding more strongly and clearly, and that I might find favor in your sight. And Lord, do consider that this nation is your people. And the Lord said, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. And he said, well, if your presence doesn't go with us, then don't take us up. And then he goes on. But the point being that Moses was the one who knew God's ways. The whole nation of Israel, they only knew his outward acts. They didn't know why God was doing the things that he was doing, but they could see what he was doing. And that was it. They didn't know God. But Moses did because he pressed in and he said, show me your ways. He wanted to know him. He said, I want to know you. What preceded this where Moses said that? You know what happened right before this was the golden calf incident where Moses is up on the mountain with God, loving on God, being intimate with God, and God's being intimate with him. And Moses, while he's up there with God, the people get restless and they make this golden calf. And I, I just think this is another funny way that the Bible says it, where it's like Moses, when he does come down and he gets mad, he's like to Aaron, the high priest, what, what have these people done to you that you would let them do this, that you, would, that you would get on board with them and do this? He held Aaron accountable. And Aaron goes, well, they just gave me all their ornaments, their gold ornaments and earrings, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> so I, I kind of doubt that that's how it happened, but that's what he told him. But Moses was up there with God. The people are down there, and Moses comes down, and while he's up there, God tells him what they've done, and Moses intercedes for the people. And he stopped God. So God says, get out of my way. I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. That's what, he, that's what God wanted to do. 
He was going to wipe out the whole nation of Israel and just start over with Moses. And Moses interceded so that God changed his mind and said he wouldn't do that. So then Moses goes down and sees what they're doing, and then Moses gets mad. But what, do you, but what happened after that was that they killed 3,000 people, I think, somewhere around 3,000. The tribe of Levi came over on Moses' side. They killed 3,000 people because of the golden calf incident. And then on top of that, God sent a plague and wiped out more of them. And so Moses is like, I'm leading this nation. I'm supposed to take them into the promised land. And God is wiping them out and sending plagues and they're killing them by the sword. And he's like, I need to know God. I need to understand God. I need to know if I'm going to lead these people, I need to know God. I need to know his character. I need to know why he does the things he does. I need to know you know, his ways, not just his acts. And that's when Moses, yeah. I mean, Moses had a a far more intimate relationship. Father, you know, he knew him far more intimately than the nation of Israel did. Um, so, So going on with this story, so Moses then, he says, show me your ways. And, and God says to him, um, what I want you to, what I do want you guys to see <clears throat> is that because I, we're talking about two things, we're talking about us knowing God and God's desire to, for us to know him. But we're also talking about, does God know us? And something that I hadn't really noticed much before was God kept saying, Moses, I know you. I know you personally. I know you by name. It was like, why is he bringing that fact out? He knows everything. He knows everybody's name. So there was something between Moses and God that was an intimate relationship that they had together, that he knew God in a way that the others didn't, and God knew him in a way that he wasn't able to know the rest of the nation of Israel on that intimacy level. So um, going on then, um, Moses is saying, you know, down on verse 18, he says, Moses said, I beseech you, show me your glory. And, Mo- and God said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, before you. And then he goes on in uh, verse 20, he says, but you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. So what I see there is Moses is crying out to God for more of God. Show me who you are, God. I want to know and understand you. I want to know your ways. And God says, Moses, I know you personally, and you have found favor in my sight, so this is what I'm going to do for you. He says, show me your glory. And God says, no man can see my face and live. But what I can show you, I will. As much, Moses, as you can handle, I am going to give to you. I want for you to know me. I'm not going to let you get killed in the process. You can't see my face and live. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to set you in the cleft of the rock. And when my glory passes by, I'm going to cover you with my hand to protect you. And then when I get beyond that, I'll remove my hand. You can see my back parts. And he proclaimed who he was. This is God in the Old Testament telling us exactly who he is. He says, I, if we turn the page, it's like, um, he says, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth, 
keeping mercy and loving kindness for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Some translations say, or actually there's a couple other places in the Old Testament where that's quoted that say the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. So God is not just like, well, your dad didn't like me, so I'm going to punish you. He doesn't do that. He holds all of us accountable for our own sins. And if we love him, he's showing mercy, forgiveness, loving kindness to us. But if we are rebellious and obstinate and reject him, he has no choice but to judge that. Is all, that's all. So he's revealing to, to Moses, I'm a God of love, but I'm a God of justice as well. And you know what, what it is? He didn't, he didn't just talk about all the goodies. He, he also said, I judge the guilty. I, I don't let anybody get away with anything. And that is a part of his goodness because he said, I'm going to make all of my goodness pass before you. So that's a part of his, his goodness. What I want to bring out, the whole reason I took the time to read all of that story is... Moses was in that place with God where God, as we see from all the scriptures we read, God is willing and wants, it is his desire for us to know him. And sometimes we think, man, it seems like I'm crying out to God for more of him and to know him. And, and we feel like God's holding out on us sometimes. But God is giving us everything that we can handle. If we can handle it, he's showing us more. And if you're not getting from God what you think, that you're, you know, well, I don't know God that well. He never speaks to me. He never shows up. I don't sense his presence. I'd, it's probably because you haven't put yourself in a place and pressed in and asked God, show me, and, and really gotten yourself out there and been willing for him to know you. Because that's the difference I see here is he kept saying, Moses, I know your name. Well, come on. He knew everybody's name. He's trying to say that if, there's a, if you feel like God is holding out on you, it's not God's fault. It's not, the hangup is not with God. It's because we're not making ourselves available to God and having those times of intimacy where we're going in, we're shutting the door and having our secret time with the Lord and crying out to him. And we're not just... Um, letting him reveal himself to us, but we're letting him see us. We're being vulnerable to God. We're being willing to be open and intimate with God about who we are and what's going on in our life. We're not just holding him at bay. Does that make sense to you guys? So the question is, we know the answer is that God wants us to know him. The question is, are we willing to be known by God? And we're not talking about his omnipresence or his omniscience, the fact that he knows everybody. We see scriptures that say, you know, you can't hide from God. He knows everything. You know, where can I go to flee from your presence? And God saying, you know, I feel heaven and earth. You can't get away from me. I know everything about everybody. But, but he knows that about sinners too, people that aren't even in relationship with them. He wants us to be in a place where we're willing to be open and intimate with him like he is willing 
to be known by us. It's a two-way thing. It can't be one-sided. Like I said, I know everything about Joyce Meyer almost. I think I do. I know a lot about her. She doesn't know me. There's no relationship between me and Joyce Meyer. It's all one-sided. I'm only one with any knowledge of her. She knows nothing about me. Nothing. She doesn't know my weaknesses. She doesn't know my strengths. She doesn't know my heartaches. She doesn't know anything about me. God wants to know all of that about you. He already does. I'm not saying he's not omnipotent or omniscient, but he wants us to be that open book to him where we're pressing in to know him intimately and and unburdening our heart to him, being willing to get the walls down. I'm you know, we do that with people. I know Jennifer, I've known her for years and years, but she knows as much of me in reality, and I know as much of her in reality as we are willing to let each other know, right? You only know as much of me as I've been willing to uncover myself to you. And we, do, we get so good at that with people where we put pretenses, we put walls up, we have pretenses, and we act a certain way, and we get good at just letting people know just so much of me. Usually our spouse knows the most. That's why when you hear people talking, you go, you know, I'm not perfect, just ask my husband, you know, because they, know, they see the real you. And... God wants us to be the real you with him all the time. And we get so used to putting up pretenses with people and putting up walls with people that I think that when we go into the presence of God, a lot of times in prayer, that we're doing the same thing and we don't even know it. And God is saying, I want to know you. I want you to come. I want you to come with an open heart. I want you to pour out to me what's on your heart and speak to me plainly and and then he can move and he can change us and he can transform us. But not if we put all these walls up and we just play a game of pretend. I used to go into the presence of God and, well, I, I mean, I probably still do it to a certain extent, where let's say I'd had something where I thought I'd acted ugly, you know, maybe with my kids or maybe I lost my patience with my children or something like that and scolded them and, and then I felt bad about it. And I'd be like, now I can't go in the presence of God. And I'd let that kind of wear off for a little bit and then I'd finally be able to go into the presence of God. And it's like we bring, this is me, Lord. This is the Leslie that prays and worships and reads her Bible and goes to church and and does all these good things, and this is who I am, God, and I'm here now to worship you. And it's like the Lord said to me one time, he said, I see your life as a whole. You know, we divide up our life into the good stuff and the bad stuff. And when we come before God, we think we're just bringing the good stuff, and we're just kind of hiding the bad stuff back there and not being who we really are. And he's like, your life is a whole before me, and, if, and you live before me. You live before me. I see it all. And don't come to me with a divided life. Come to me with all of who you are. And just love me. And come to know me. And he's going to love back on us. Because you know what? He, he doesn't... He loved us when we were enemies. We were enemies of his. We were sinners and enemies, and Jesus died for us. How much more? I read you the verses last week out of Romans 5 where it says, if when we were enemies we were saved, 
by the blood of Jesus, how much more certain it is that now that we are reconciled, we will be saved, daily delivered from sin's dominion through his resurrection life. Daily delivered through sins from sin's dominion. That's what God sees. That's how he sees us. He sees us as... You are righteous because the blood of Jesus was shed for you when you were still an enemy of mine. And now that you're my son, of course I'm going to be here to save you. Daily, I'm going to set you free from sin's dominion in your life because I love you and I see something in you. I see who I created you to be. I created you to be the image of God, to walk and rule and reign in life through Jesus Christ. And we try to hide things from him and cover things up. And God said to me one time, he said, Leslie, a fig leaf is a poor substitute for the blood of Jesus. And every time we don't come and be our real self, to God who loves us and is transforming us, not condemning us. Every time we come to him with a divided life and, and leave off all of that stuff and think we can't bring that into the presence of God, we're using a fig leaf to cover up. We're hiding from God. I mean, I've been hiding from God at times in my life. And it was usually because of condemnation, because the enemy comes and brings condemnation to your life. And you think, well, I can't, I can't go and be with God. I'm not good enough. We are good enough well, because Jesus said we're good enough. His blood made us good enough. Behold, I stand at the, go the, the door and knock. And he's talking to who? The Laodicean church who supposedly represent this time and this age. But he's talking to them the church, they're in relationship with him. They're washed in the blood of Jesus. And he has to say to them, I'm standing at the door and knocking. You know, they were the self-satisfied church, weren't they? You know, that, I'm so happy you brought that. That's what I was going to close with. That was my last verse in here. Um, Adam hid from God, right? So we're talking about trying to cover things up, hide from God, and not press in to an intimate relationship with him where I know him and he knows me. Adam hid from God and when, when, he, when he ate the um, fruit and then he hid and God came, he heard God walking and, and Adam said, you know, I hid from you because I was naked. And God said, well, who told you you were naked? And he, and he said, well, and then he started the blame game. But the point is, he hid, he said, no, I'm sorry. He said, I was afraid because I was naked. And, and so God then said, well, who told you you were naked? So to me, when he said, I was afraid I was naked, it was because he knew he had done wrong and God was going to know that he had done wrong. Um, that's condemnation. That's, he was falling prey to condemnation. But how come, at, you know, well, I've heard heard people talking about how Adam, before, before the fall, he was naked, right? He was already naked. And he didn't know it. And I've heard ministers um, in the past say, well, <clears throat> he was clothed with the glory of God. And so that's why he didn't know he was naked. But I think what the biblical authors want us to glean from that, that he didn't know he was naked, was because he was so... Um, focused outward and not focused inward. He didn't know he was naked because he wasn't focused on himself. And what's happened after the fall is we 
humans are so focused on ourself. What about me? Oh, Joyce Meyer's story. She tells about how she woke up one morning and she was, I was laying in bed and I was thinking, how am I going to get my husband to do what I want him to do for me today? And, and, you know, just thinking like that. The minute she woke up and she said, God spoke to her and said, you know, you guys are just, when I look at all, my, all of you humans, you're like a bunch of robots that you get wound up in the morning and you're, you know, you're like this and then you, you wind up in the back. And you stand up and you're like, what about me? What about me? What about me? And all day long, we're going around saying, what about me? It's all about me. Self, self, self. Self is on the throne and not Jesus, the king on the throne. When we're thinking about me, 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 me all the time. Ultimate Journey does a fantastic job of teaching us that we need to get self off of the throne and Christ on the throne of our heart. And they talk about abandoning the self-life and embracing the Christ life, about denying your, your what? Your self and picking up your cross and following Jesus. Because Jesus said that, deny yourself. Adam didn't know he was naked because he wasn't thinking about himself at all until the fall came, and then everything turned inward, and we were all focused from day one. The, what about me? What about me? What about me? I went to an Ultimate Journey thing at their headquarters, and at the end of it, they had everybody go around and say, why do I want to make Jesus my covenant representative, which is the same thing as saying, why do I want to make Jesus my Lord and Savior? And the lady sitting next to me, she said it perfectly. She just said, I'm sick of me. And we, and don't you feel like that sometimes? It's like, I'm just so sick of myself. It's because we're too focused on ourselves. It's all about me all the time. And so that, La that Laodicean church, you know what I find quite interesting? Adam was naked and he didn't know it, but it was a good thing. He just wasn't focused on himself. The Laodicean church that shut Jesus out and he was outside knocking on the door trying to get in. They were naked also and they didn't know it. You remember what he said to them? You are poor, blind, and naked. So I counsel you to buy from me gold tried in fire. And he goes on and he tells them, but he said to the Laodicean church, you're naked. They didn't even know they were naked. And this time it's a bad thing to be naked and not know it. Unlike with Adam, because Adam, it was all about, because he was looking outward, not focused on himself. And with the Laodicean church, they were so selfish and self-satisfied that they didn't know they needed God. Because he said, you say, I'm rich. I'm in need of nothing. And, you know, I read a, um, a thing in a book by um, Charles Finney where he said, one grand defect among Christians is that they are so full in themselves that they fail to realize they, they are in need of God in everything. How long will it be before we realize our need of God and go to him and press into his presence and ask of him, show me your ways. Show me who you are. And we are open. You know, the Bible says, 
Come boldly to the throne of grace. I, we need to read that. I've got five more minutes. I think we can get it done. That's Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It starts saying, For the word that God speaks is alive and full of power. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating to the dividing line of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, the deepest parts of our nature, exposing and sifting and analyzing and judging the very thoughts and purposes of the heart. And not a creature exists that is concealed from his sight, but all things are open and exposed, naked and defenseless to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Inasmuch then as we have a great high priest who has already passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession of faith in him. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to understand and sympathize and have a shared feeling with our weaknesses to the assaults of temptation, but one who's been tempted in every respect as we are yet without sinning. Let us then fearlessly and confidently and boldly draw near to the throne of grace. This word boldly, it means frank, being, being very frank, being very open and honest with God. We know that when we were an enemy of God, he died for us. He loved us then. He loved us first. If he did that when we were an enemy, why should we go, not go into his presence now that he says that we are washed in the blood of Jesus with openness and frankness and boldness to his throne of grace to receive mercy for our failures and grace to help us in a time of need. There's no reason to hang back. There's no reason not to press in. I've got this book here. If, if, if anybody wants to read a good book, go get this book. It's called The Pursuit of God by A.W. Tozier. And he's got a whole chapter in it where he talks about the way into the Holy of Holies. You, you all know about the Old Testament um, um, temple, how it had the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, what was there? What was in the Holy of Holies? The presence of God. It'd kill you if you went in there the wrong way in the Old Testament. But when Jesus died on the cross, we sing songs about it all the time. The veil was rent from the top to the bottom, making the way open into the presence of God. And now the Bible says we all can come in, not just the high priest and not just once a year, but now every day, all day long, we have access to the very presence of God that was behind the veil in the Old Testament. It's been rent and we can come on in and we can know God intimately. But why do we tarry without? In this chapter, he's saying, if the way's been made open, why do we hang back? Why do we not press in to know God? and to let him know us, and to be set free, and to be transformed into the people that he made us to be originally. Originally, we were supposed to be able to be naked and not, not so self-focused that we didn't even know it. That's how he made us to be originally, as his image, where we would walk around and we'd do nothing but love. You know that song, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God. 
you know what? It says there, there's two things. It says that, that if, if you're, um, he that loveth, I mean, I got to start over. I can't do it in the middle. I have to start right from the beginning. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is two things, born of God and knows God. He that loveth not knoweth not God. It doesn't say he's not born of God. It says if you don't love, you don't know God. You might be born again. You might be born again, born, born of God. But if you're not loving, if you're not doing the love walk, you don't know God because God is love. And so we're talking tonight about knowing God, right? One of the reasons that we love God, well, or we, when we know God, we're able to love people because we've been transformed by being in his presence. So... In this book, he says, the way's been made open to the very presence of God. We can all go in, but we don't. We hold back. I think it's for two reasons. One of them is condemnation. We don't feel worthy. We, we get to be in like Adam. I was afraid because I was naked. I made a mistake, and now I can't go into the presence of God. And so condemnation steals the presence of God from us when we have every right to go in. God knows us. He knows what we do, and he still invites us in because it's in that place and in that place alone where we're going to be changed. You're not going to be changed if you don't get into the presence of God. Moses was changed because he pressed in and knew God. The nation, they stood back. They didn't get changed. That's the place where transformation takes place. So A.W. Tozier in his chapter, he says, what is it that keeps us back? It's another veil that we've erected. We've put a veil up between God and us, and it's a veil that he calls the self-life, self-righteousness, self-promotion, self-pity, all about me. It's all about me. So this has been a class about the image of God and about um, the kingdom of God coming. And if, if it's a kingdom, I believe that the Bible is very clear. It says Jesus came to restore that image to us where we can look like God again. We can, we can image him the way we were always meant to, but only if Jesus... The king is reigning in our life. That's the only way we can do it. We can't do it without him. The Christian life is impossible on our own. But when we're born from above and when we know God and when we press into the, the presence of God and know him intimately, we can do it because it's not us doing it. It's Christ in us doing it. We have died. Self is off the throne. Jesus is on the throne. And <clears throat> the Bible says that I am crucified with Christ, yet I live. But it's not me. It's Christ in me that's living. The life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus loves us. Father God loves us. He gave his son so that we could come into the presence of God, the very presence of God through the blood, through that new and living way and be transformed. But then the devil's tricked us to where we just stay back. Mm, can't do it. 
Nope. It's either complacency or condemnation. We're either that Laodicean church that's like, I don't need anything. I'm good. I'm good. Pastor talked about it. The stubbornly satisfied, he said. The Pharisees, they thought, I don't need God. You remember he talked about how ironic it was or, or sarcastic it was that, that they were like, well, we don't need God. We're, you know, Jesus said, you're the righteous. You, don't, you think you don't need me. I'm going to go to the ones who know they need me. We need to know that we need God and press in because he's the one who can change us, can't change ourselves. It's done by the power of the Holy Spirit, only by the Spirit. 